Let's go ahead and we'll bow our hearts in prayer. Holy Father, we thank you that you sent your Son, and in the giving of your Son, you gave of yourself. Your very wrath was satisfied. You were propitiated by his sinless, precious blood that we will remember even tonight. And thank you for the promise of the new covenant that he enacted that night that just as the prophets of old said, you'd send the Spirit to dwell in us and to live in us, to help us until you take us home. So teach us, Lord, tonight more about your table, what it means, how to understand it, how we should uh, practice it, and we commit our evening to you, and I ask you for your help, and I thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. As you can see, we're going to speak tonight on the topic of the Lord's table, the Lord's table. So by way of introduction there on your handout, it's 12 pages, so fasten your pew belt, let's run, all right? A study of the Lord's table is so very important because we need to express worship in spirit and in truth. Jesus said that in John 4 to the woman at the well, which is very difficult to do if we do not have a clear understanding as to the meaning and purpose of this ordinance. When we celebrate the Lord's table or the Lord's supper, it's one of the highest expressions of Christian worship. As we will examine tonight, the Lord's table is not only an act of worship, but it's an acted out sermon. The Lord's table is designed to remember both his death and his resurrection while looking to the future for his return in glory. And yet there seems to be so much misunderstanding in our day about the Lord's supper. And so in our session tonight, we hope to ask and answer seven different questions. First, what do we mean by the Lord's Supper? What is the importance of the Lord's Supper today? What positions have been taken concerning the Lord's Supper? Is baptism required before a person can take this ordinance? Should the Lord's Supper be open or closed? How often should the Lord's Supper be observed? And should the Lord's Supper be observed outside of the local assembly? So let's start with the first question. What do we mean by the Lord's Supper? The Lord's Supper, it's also called the Lord's Table in 1 Corinthians 10. There Paul speaks of the table of the Lord, or sometimes you can hear it translated the Lord's Table. And most commonly, it's referred to as communion. And it's one of two ordinances that Jesus instituted while he was still on earth. Very often, a person's view of the meaning of the Lord's table can easily be identified by whether they refer to this rite as a sacrament or as an ordinance. So if you're in a church, Protestant or Catholic, and they're calling it a sacrament, they typically mean something very different than an assembly that refers to it as an ordinance. The word sacrament is from the Latin sacramentum, meaning something set apart as sacred and is used to describe a religious rite that is believed to bring God's grace with its observance. This, of course, is particularly true in Roman Catholicism that has seven sacraments. The term ordinance is a term used mostly by evangelicals to describe an act of obedience, an order, so to speak, given by Christ that is symbolic in nature and does not in any way express the conveyance of grace. That, by the way, is how most evangelicals understand the table. We'll see some exceptions to that tonight. Most often, but not always, when the term communion, and the word communion would come from 1 Corinthians 10, 16, where we speak about communing with the Lord at that table. Chapter 10 and 11 of 1 Corinthians 10 is often ignored in reference to the table. Paul's addressing another subject, but he interfaces it with the Lord's Supper. You have the word communion, or the Eucharist from Matthew 26, where Jesus gave thanks. Eucharisteo is the word to give thanks, and so we get our English word Eucharist. It comes right from the Greek text. But typically, when those terms are used, they're used to describe this rite in, in this rite where there's some conveyance of grace that is in view. So it's more than symbolic. Typically, not always. But typically when someone, a church, refers to it always as communion or always as the Eucharist, they mean typically more than what the Bible speaks to it. Um, the table is referred to as the Lord's Supper in 1 Corinthians 11.20, or sometimes it's summarized with the words, the Last Supper. 
And that's based on Luke 22:15, where Jesus said, I have desired earnestly to eat this Passover before I suffer. So it's his last supper on earth before he enters into his resurrection body. Of course, he eats again in his resurrection body. Um, because it was the last meal Jesus ate before his betrayal and arrest. It's also described as the cup of the Lord in 1 Corinthians 10. Paul there speaks of the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons and how they're antithetical. Um, and it's also referred to as the breaking of bread, like an axe. Uh, they were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching to fellowship and to the breaking of bread. Or later in Acts 20, in the first day of the week, they gathered together to break bread. Now, context is everything because sometimes the term to break bread just refers to a meal. And we use it that way sometimes, hey, let's break bread together, meaning let's have a meal together. But sometimes contextually, it's an idiom that refers to the Lord's table, and context is everything, and you want to watch that as you see the term used. The institution number nine of this rite is recorded in the Synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and it is referenced in 1 Corinthians 10 and 11. John, of course, in his discourse, features a lot of things that weren't covered in that evening meal, but doesn't focus on the meal so much as the things in and around the meal being the last gospel to be written and wanting to address, obviously, some critical issues God gave him. One of the important moments of the Last Supper is Jesus' command to remember what he was about to do on our behalf by shedding his blood on the cross, thereby paying the debt for our sins. And so when he had taken bread and he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And so his body is being broken as a payment for sin. The ordinance of the Lord's table is a time to remember the meaning of his suffering on earth, but also of his resurrection and coming again. We're not simply commemorating his death, but we are also affirming his resurrection because we are to celebrate it until he comes again. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you do so, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes again. So in that statement alone, there's an implication that he's not dead, he's alive, and two, that he's coming again. And so the Lord's Supper, as we prepare ourselves spiritually, is a reminder that Jesus is coming back from heaven and we need to be ready. So um, 13, like baptism, it is a picture of Christ's death and resurrection. We'll talk a little bit about that. Knowing that he was soon to die, the Lord expressed a deep desire to celebrate a final Passover with his beloved disciples. So they're celebrating the Passover meal, but Jesus is going to put new definition to that meal that will transpire that evening. When the sacred meal was done... Christ broke bread and poured the fruit of the vine and served it to his disciples. And so Luke records, and when he had taken some bread and given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, this is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, he took the cup after they had eaten, saying, this cup, which is poured out for you, is the new covenant of my blood. So it is not by accident that the Lord Jesus instituted the Lord's Supper during their Passover meal. Remember, Passover was one of the feasts that a pious Jew would celebrate every year. When God passed over those households that applied the blood to the doorposts and the lintel. And of course, that Passover lamb was a picture of the Lord Jesus himself. So Paul will say, Christ, our Passover, has been sacrificed for us. John the Baptist will say, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So in Passover itself, it's picturing what Jesus is going to accomplish. We could do a couple of weeks, I suppose, just on Passover and all of the parallels in that Jewish rite to Christianity today. But the fact that he institutes the Lord's Supper during this Jewish Passover meal is of great significance because the Passover meal was the most sacred feast of the Jewish religious year. Passover commemorated the final plague on Egypt when the firstborn of the Egyptians died and the Israelites were spared because by the blood of a lamb was sprinkled on their doorposts, Exodus course chapter 12. It was during this memorial that Jesus gave thanks and introduced the new covenant. 
that would be enacted through his death and resurrection for the forgiveness of sin. So think about this for a moment. Here's the account that Paul gives in 1 Corinthians 11.25, and he uses the term the new covenant. In the same way, he took the cup also after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Sound familiar? This is what the prophets foretold, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, others, that a day was coming when God was going to introduce a new covenant, when he would forgive their iniquity, he would put his spirit within them. No Old Testament Jew knew it on the level that a new covenant Christian knows that. So he's speaking of what the prophets of old had written of, and he's also speaking of the forgiveness. For instance, in Matthew's account, Jesus said, for this is my blood of the covenant, talking about this new covenant, which is poured out for many for forgiveness of sins. They concluded the feast by singing a hymn, and they went out into the night in the Mount of Olives. And so in Matthew 26, 30, it says, after singing to him, they went out to the Mount of Olives. Uh, Have you ever thought about Jesus singing? The night in which he is headed towards the cross, and he's singing. It's really a powerful thought to ponder. And I'm sure he's saying often. Why? Because he was the epitome of a spirit-filled, spirit-controlled person. And yet even with what he was facing that would cause such trauma in his own heart where he would sweat blood later that night, he sings to him. says a lot. We don't have an excuse really not to sing, do we? The Apostle Paul, who of course was not present, was of course not present in the upper room at the original institution of this ordinance, wrote by divine revelation about the Lord's Supper is found in 1 Corinthians 11. He repeats some things that obviously were well-known, but he also adds things that God gave him by direct revelation as an apostle. Whoever eats the bread, he says, or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the body and blood of the Lord. A man ought to examine himself before he eats of the bread and drinks of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without recognizing the body of the Lord eats and drinks judgment on himself. So we may ask, what is what it means to partake of the bread and of the cup in a way that is classified here as an unworthy manner? Some have said it means to disregard the true meaning of the bread and cup, and so forgetting the tremendous price our Savior paid for our salvation. Uh, Certainly, we should remember what the meaning of the cup is, but that's not what is in view, because someone could potentially go to the Lord's table and remember what it means and still participate in an unworthy manner. Others have said it means to allow the ceremony to become dead in a formal ritual. So they'd say, oh, it's just tacked on the end of a service, you're just going through the motions, You're participating in an unworthy manner. Could be, but not necessarily. But contextually, the statement refers to come to the Lord's, come to the table with unconfessed sin. And so I gave you the verses where Paul will go on and say, therefore, let a man examine himself. So we do a time of self-examination of the Lord's table. An unworthy manner is the way the Corinthians participated in it. They came to the table with unconfessed sin in their life, and yet they held the very elements that symbolized that they had been bought with a price, they were not their own, and they participated anyway, and so they ate discipline to themselves. And Paul said, if we would judge ourselves rightly, the Lord wouldn't need to discipline us. So we invite the discipline of the Lord when we come to his table with known, willful, unconfessed, unrepented sin. In keeping with Paul's instruction, each should examine himself before eating of the bread and drinking of the cup so as to heed the warning. I've met people over the years who say, I'm just so paranoid, I don't even want to participate. I said, well, uh, you know, if, if you're trying to look for a sin that you can't seem to find, then you're really, you're, you're disobeying God. 
because God commands us to participate in the table. And the problem is not with the command, the problem's with us if we are going to be willfully disobedient by either not getting our heart clear with others or with the Lord. Uh, another statement Paul made that is not included in the Gospels is 1 Corinthians eleven twenty six. for whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until He comes. So we're proclaiming the Lord's death until He comes again. This statement tells us that this is also a time to remember that Jesus is returning. And this ordinance, too, is to be practiced until he returns. We do it until he returns. But if when we come to this table, we are remembering, too, that it's a proclamation of his return, what does his return do to us? Well, John says the one who focuses on the return purifies himself as he is pure. It should have a purifying effect and allow us to put things into perspective in terms of things that are important. Jesus said that the bread spoke of his body, which would be broken, for as prophesied, there was not a broken bone, but his body was broken. Remember when they ate the Passover meal, um, Exodus 12, 46, God specified not a single bone should be broken when they ate it. Why? Because that Passover lamb was representative of Christ's body where not a single bone would be broken. The Passover lamb at that dinner would be ripped apart, and Christ's body was brutalized. But of course, no one would take his life. He would give it in every respect. And so he commanded his spirit to the Father. He gave up the ghost, as the old English says. He yielded his spirit. Such that when they came to his cross, thinking they would need to break his legs to induce suffocation, there was no need to. He was already dead. And they proved it when they took the spear and blood and water came out his side. So, again, it was a fulfillment of prophecy. The cup of juice, technically, it never says wine anywhere in the Bible. It just says the cup. But I suspect it was either new wine or if they were following uh, Mosaic oral tradition, which is later affirmed in the Didache, which is a second century A.D. pastoral manual, because no Jew or early church Christian wanted to be guilty of using strong drink, which, of course, is not the distilled liquors that come almost a thousand years later, but, raw, but fermented wine, wine that had turned. The didache in the Passover manual specified the amount of water to mix with the wine. In either case, when he took the cup, the cup of juice spoke of his blood, indicating the terrible death he would soon experience. And so when he said, this do in remembrance of me, indicating this was a rite that must be continued in the future. This also indicated that the Passover, which required the death of a lamb and prophetically looked forward to the coming of the Lamb of God, who would take away the sin of the world, was now obsolete. The new covenant took its place when the Lord, the Passover lamb, has been sacrificed for us, such that the sacrificial system is no longer needed. And so the writer of the Hebrews expounds on that, that the blood of bulls and goats and so forth could never remove sin. Now, there's a ton of theology in what we just looked at, and I've given you a very detailed handout so you can go home and look up the passages, think about it, meditate on these. These are important. What is the importance of the Lord's Supper today? Well, far from losing any of its significance and importance of necessity, this ceremony must be a regular and vital happening in the life of His church. Christ's broken body and spilt blood is the bedrock of our faith. It's part of the gospel. Without Christ's death and resurrection, we cannot be forgiven, and it is impossible to be indwelt by the Spirit, much less have fellowship with God. Our whole ability to have fellowship with the living God, to be made alive, is because of the indwelling presence of the Spirit. That's why Christians who are born again pray very differently than people who are just religiously, outwardly saying words. Because God has done something on the inside. There's an inside job that takes place. That wasn't possible under the Old Covenant. And so you, having heard the message of truth, having believed, 
You are sealed with the spirit of promise, Paul wrote in Ephesians 1. We are remembering that when Jesus died on the cross, he was humiliated as his body was broken and disfigured and massacred so badly that it was hardly recognizable as the prophets said. The prophets predicted it. David, a thousand years earlier in Psalm 22, the suffering servant passage that starts in Isaiah 52 and goes all the way through 53 speaks of the same truth. And so Isaiah 52, 14, I didn't give you that verse. You should probably write it out there in the margin. It says, so his appearance was marred more than any man and his form more than the sons of man. Christ was brutally beaten for us. It is imperative that as a Christian, we periodically take time to remember Christ's indictment against sin and the price paid for our redemption. That's what we're doing at this table. We're remembering there's a price paid, and we need to carry, as Paul said, the death of Christ about in our being. Partaking of the Lord's Supper gives us opportunity to worship as we ponder and remember Jesus' great sacrifice, lest we forget. So Paul says, you say, could we forget? Yes, in a practical sense. So remember the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 6, and they're living a compromised life. And he says, don't you know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who's in you, whom you have from God, that you're not your own, you've been bought with a price? Don't you know? Don't you know? Can't you remember this? And so that's what we're remembering at this table that we've been bought with a price, that we're not our own. When we partake of the Lord's Supper, we are publicly proclaiming that we believe and personally embrace what Christ has done for us. Jesus' words during the Last Last Supper, excuse me, about the unleavened bread and the cup echo what he said after he fed the 5,000. Remember he fed the 5,000 there in Bethsaida on the eastern side of the... Uh, sea of Galilee, and, and then the, he came back over and crossed over to the west side, and people were looking for him, and they found him in Capernaum in a synagogue. Some of you have been at that synagogue with me. The actual floor is a fourth century floor, but under the fourth century floor is the first century floor that Jesus literally walked on. You're right there in Capernaum, which was his hometown, if you remember. And so it was there Jesus said, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will not hunger, and he who believes in me will never thirst. I am the living bread that came down out of heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread also which I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. As Christians, we are tempted to make our own pursuits and desires the focus of our lives. Instead of having the Lord as the center of our affections, And so when the Lord Jesus gave the bread of life discourse, he also said, do not work for the food which perishes, but for the food which endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you, for on him him the Father God has set his seal. Jesus rebuked those who sought after him only for the fish and the loaves. They were self-centered. We want a meal. That's, we can dump on them, but you see a lot of Christians, we can be that way. We've got our plan, our schedule, our goals, our purposes, and Jesus has very little to do with it sometimes. So he bigs them, they're just, they just want the fish and the loaves, such that he pointed them to, to himself and to eternal life. So Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat of the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood... You have no life in yourselves. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. So during this ordinance, we have an opportunity to examine ourselves to see if we have maintained our priorities to the Lord. Let's ask a third question. What positions have been taken concerning the Lord's Supper? How have people understood the Lord's table? Well, through the centuries, there have been four views that have been held as to how we are to interpret the meaning of the elements in the Lord's table. The traditional Roman Catholic view is that of transubstantiation, or sometimes it's called the real presence view 
All right. According to this view, when the priest pronounces the words, this is my body, he'll hold the host up and he'll say, this is my body, at that moment over the bread, and then elevates the cup. The elements are actually changed into the physical body and blood of the Lord. That's what they teach. The word transubstantiation literally means a change trans substance a change of substance. So the Catholic Church teaches that this change is not discernible to the senses and that the bread and wine still look and taste like bread and wine, but they really are the body and blood of the Lord and are to be honored as such. And so in the Catechism of the Catholic Church, defining this doctrine in section 1376, they say the Council of Trent, which by the way was reaffirmed at Vatican I, Vatican II, the Council of Trent summarizes the Catholic faith by declaring, because Christ our Redeemer said that it was truly his body and that he was offering under the species of bread, it has always been the conviction of the church of God in his, this holy council now declares again that by the consecration of the bread and wine, there takes place a change of the whole substance of the bread into the substance of the body of Christ, our Lord, and out and of the whole substance of the wine into the substance of his blood. This change the Holy Catholic Church has fittingly and properly called transubstantiation. In other words, the Catholic Church teaches that once an ordained priest blesses the bread and cup, and by the way, I can't hold up the host and say, this is my body and have it turned. Only an ordained priest and he has to come through the pope, through the cardinals, through the bishop, right down to the rank and file. Now think about this. If to literally eat his body and drink his blood is what is necessary to have eternal life, and only an ordained priest of the Roman Catholic Church can make it happen, <laughs> they got a hold on you. Salvation is now through the Roman Church. And by the way, that's precisely what they teach. Now, they teach that people can be saved in ignorance, but they also teach that if you're a Roman Catholic and then you defy Roman Catholic doctrine, you've committed a moral, mortal sin and you will die as a lost person. They say that while the elements are literally transformed into the body, blood, and soul, and divinity of Jesus Christ, the sensory characteristics or appearances of touch, taste, and smell remain the same. And so here's my missalette that I got at my first communion when I was seven years old. We didn't carry Bibles to church. We carried our, our missiles to church. And it says, uh, elevation of the chalice. Offer the blood of Jesus to the heavenly Father for the forgiveness of your sins and those of this whole world. This mass is not only a remembrance of the passion and death of Jesus, but also a true sacrifice, the sacrifice of the cross on Calvary, offered again in an unbloody manner under the appearances of bread and wine. So they're saying that Jesus is being offered again during the time of the Mass. However, the sensory characteristics remain the same. So, for instance, this is a catechism that we memorized as kids. It hasn't changed. The, the covers have and everything else, but it's still the same. They write, um, by the appearances of bread and wine, we mean their color, taste, weight, shape, and whatever else appears to the senses. The substance of anything is what it is. The appearances are what it looks like. The change of the entire substance of the bread and wine into the body and blood of Christ is called transubstantiation. When the priest says, this is my body at Mass, you would immediately see Christ and not the appearances of bread. If God did not prevent it by a miracle, he keeps the appearances of bread in existence to enable us to eat the flesh of Christ without difficulty. So he's saying the miracle of it is that it is literally changed into the body and blood of Christ. You are looking at the body of Jesus, literally, they argue, when it's raised up. But God, by his miraculous power, does not allow it to look anything but like bread and like juice so that you can participate in it. 
Now, that to me is not the definition of a miracle, not as it's taught in Scripture. That's what I call a con job. (laughs) This is decidedly, number nine, an unbiblical doctrine, for the Bible is silent on the notion of transubstantiation as it declares the Lord's Supper is to be a memorial. For justification of transubstantiation, the Catholic Church appeals to John 6.55, which says, for my flesh is real food and my blood is real drink. And Matthew 26, take and eat, this is my body. Jesus did not say my food is real flesh, but my flesh is real food. And he does not say my drink is real blood, but my blood is real drink. Think about that. Clearly when Jesus says this is my body, he is speaking metaphorically, meaning this represents my body, because in the Old Testament it was forbidden for Jews to drink blood. In addition, in the New Testament, it is equally clear that we are not to drink blood. The Jerusalem Council, Acts 15, they're dealing with issues that concern Gentiles. In Acts 15, he says, you're to abstain from blood, says it twice over. And yet, this is what Jesus would be asking his people to do if transubstantiation were true. The most serious reason transubstantiation should be rejected is because it is viewed by Catholics as a re-sacrifice of Jesus Christ for our sins. I just read that. It's the unbloody sacrifice of our Lord Jesus Christ, as they say. Jesus died, however, once for all, and the Lord himself declared his work finished, never needing to be repeated again. All right, so that's the transubstantiation view. A second view that came from Protestants wanting to reform the church is known as consubstantiation, which essentially teaches that Jesus is with, around, and under the bread and wine, but is not literally the bread and wine. The change from the prefix trans to con is the key, and that again, the prefix trans means change, and so Catholics see a literal change takes place, while the prefix con means with, meaning Jesus is present with the elements. Martin Luther held to this position, I should say parenthetically, as do Lutherans today, there's exceptions to every rule. You may go into some evangelical Lutheran church and they don't teach true Lutheran theology, but Lutheran theology as Episcopalian theology, Church of England, teaches consubstantiation. And so the illustration used during the time of the Reformation would be like a piece of hot metal. They would say, well, the metal would represent the the bread or, or the blood, but the heat emanating in and around the metal would represent the presence of the Lord. So they would say that the bread and the juice is not literally changed, but in some mysterious, miraculous way, Christ is present in and around the elements. It's called consubstantiation. It's also held by some Eastern Orthodox churches and some other liturgical denominations like Episcopalians and Lutherans though even among these, consubstantiation is not universally accepted. It's in the 39 Articles of Faith. It's in the document that the Lutherans describe their theology, but there's always exceptions to the rule. But that's where they are on paper. A third view called the Reformed view, or sometimes called the spiritual presence view, also came to the forefront during the Reformation, teaching that Jesus, in a special way, is spiritually present at his table. Not in and around the elements, but when God's people gather together, he's there in a special way. Okay. Certainly, he's there in a special way. When two or three are gathered in his name, he's there in our presence in a special way. He's omnipresent. He's always with his people. I'll never leave you nor forsake you. But is that true in reference to the Lord's Supper? It's a question you've got to ask and answer. It's called the spiritually present view. Adherence to this view, number 22, reject the notion of the literal presence of Christ in any sense, and in many either by trans or cons, and in many ways are very similar to the memorial view, which I've not covered yet. Calvin taught that while the body and blood of Christ was only locally present in heaven and not in the elements, nonetheless, spiritual strength and grace are given from the elements. So typically in Lutheran, Episcopal churches, and some even Presbyterian churches, they'll speak about a sacrament. 
because they see something happening when God's people come to that table, that there's a means of grace that is transmitted through the table, not found in other ways. Now, we'll discuss that in a second. Hold that thought. And so sometimes the Lord's table is referred to as a means of grace. So I was talking to one of my Presbyterian brothers, who's a good guy. I led him to the Lord. He's a pastor. And he was telling me, well, you know, we need to do the sacraments because... uh, uh, you know, it's a means of grace to strengthen my, my fellowship here in New England. Well, we, we had a good talk. The problem with this view is that there is no explicit statement or inference from the Scriptures suggesting that grace is imparted to the participant. Now, if there was a verse that said that, I'd believe it. But there's no verse that teaches that. A fourth view, known as the memorial view, or sometimes called the Swinglian view, because of the Swiss reform, reformer Swingley taught this position um, is taught this position in contrast to many of the teachers of, of his day. So he taught the memorial view, which is that these are symbols, as we'll see in a moment. It is the view of most evangelical Christians today. In fact, where you travel to most places in the world and you find Bible-believing Christians, it's almost the unanimous voice that nothing mystical happens at the Lord's table. It's important. We're going to cover that in a second. But nothing mystical, um, but only a spiritual fellowship with Christ as we're commanded by faith to remember him. This view is also called the symbolic view, and it holds that the bread and the cup are simply symbols picturing what Jesus did for us. So Swingley... um, Again, he was a great man. He was a, um, he'd be more like in the Presbyterian camp today. He, they would call him like a, a reformer. He wasn't an Anabaptist. He debated a lot of the Anabaptists. These were brothers, you know, dealing with theology that hadn't been discussed in hundreds of years by most people. Swingley acknowledged the spiritual presence of Christ filling his people when they obeyed this ordinance to remember him. Anabaptists also held to this view, rejecting the idea of Christ being present in the Lord's Supper any more than he would be present anywhere else, or any more especially when God's people gather for a a Bible study or a Wednesday evening service, and there's no Lord's Supper. Now, is there something that can happen specially at the Lord's table? Sure there is. People can get their hearts right. People can remember, and people are obeying. And when you obey, you humble yourself before the Lord, and God does give grace to the humble and resist the proud. So in that sense, I suppose you could say it is a means of grace and that you're obeying. And that's, by the way, is when the Lord's Supper is offered, you should try to come because it's something that Christ commands us to do. Um. In the memorial, what number am I on? 31. Zwingli, like Calvin, taught that Christ was present physically at the right hand of the Father in heaven, but not literally in or around the elements. Memorialism, as it is sometimes called, describes the elements as symbols to memorialize what Jesus accomplished with this designation coming from Christ's own words. Do this in memory or in remembrance of me. So the memorial view. In the memorial view, it is more about the presence of Christ in the minds of people instead of his presence in the, in the uh, elements. And I think that's a good way to summarize it. This view acknowledges the spiritual presence of Christ and his people when we obey this ordinance to remember him. The memorial view has much to commend it in the scriptures, for in 1 Corinthians 11, 24, and 25, the apostle Paul tells us twice over, it's a memorial of his death as seen in the statement, in remembrance of me. Clearly, when we participate at this table, we are making a proclamation of the death of Christ while waiting for his coming. The table of the Lord involves looking back to the historical event of the cross, examining our lives within while anticipating his return in the future. 
For the Lord promised in Matthew 26, 29, but I say to you, I will not drink of this fruit of the vine from now on until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. And so there's coming a time when we'll celebrate it with him. And so someone might argue then that really wasn't direct revelation that Paul gave it. No, just the way he expressed it. As often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you are proclaiming the Lord's death until he comes again. The Lord's Supper is also a reminder of the communion believers have with each other. So think about that. When you come to the Lord's table, and one Lord's table may be different for you than another, depending where you are at that moment in your spiritual life and what God's doing in your heart. You may be remembering, and there should, I suppose, in every Lord's Supper, in some sense, be a remembrance of what the price was for our redemption. But there's also an examination. There's also a reflection that he is coming again, and we're going to meet him in the air, and we'll be given account for our lives as believers. But it's also a reminder of the communion believers have with each other. And so Paul makes that analogy, one bread, many members. We are unified. We are one body. That's why when one member suffers, everybody suffers, and so on. For as we eat and drink together, we focus on our common faith in Christ and that he has made us one body. All right, question four. Is baptism required before a person can take this ordinance? It is not stated in Scripture that a person must be baptized before being able to receive the Lord's Supper. However, the same requirement for both baptism and partaking of the Lord's Supper is salvation through faith in the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So the Lord's Supper was instituted with his believing disciples. Who was missing that night? Judas. So Judas leaves, immediately after Judas leaves, put Mark together with John's account. I gave you the scripture. Jesus initiates the Lord's table. So it's with believers. The evening before his crucifixion, such that only believers were present. In Matthew 28, 19, after our Lord's death and resurrection, he gave the great commission to his disciples to go into all the world and share the gospel followed with the command to also baptize new believers. So baptism, only two ordinances in the church. Some they call some free will Baptists, they're also called foot washing Baptists. They see a third ordinance. It's a real stretch. I teach through that whole thing if you're interested in in the course on ecclesiology. There's two ordinances. If there were a third ordinance, you'd expect to see foot washing practiced and commanded in the epistles. Of course, it's not. Uh, in either case, um, it was to be done only for believers. Believe and then be baptized. Baptism by water in the name of the Trinity has been practiced by the church from its beginning. The only requirement is stated above is that the person has trusted the Lord Jesus Christ. Acts 8, look, water, what prevents me from being baptized? You can only be baptized, Philip says, if you believe. I believe it with all my heart. Stop the chariot. They went down, not to the edge where he sprinkled him, but down into the water, and he immersed him. He baptized him. And so it is reasoned, uh, let's see, in doing so, the person understands that this picture of the salvation experience is a picture of the salvation experience and that it is a requirement of obedience to our Lord. And so it is reasoned in some churches, since the Lord's Supper is to be partaken of only by believers, baptism there is a prerequisite. And so, for instance, in uh, Eastern Europe, for instance, uh, most of the Eastern European Baptists will not allow you to take uh, the Lord's Supper until you are first baptized. And so very often in the uh, Eastern Europe, the day you get baptized, they have a special Lord's Supper celebration for those baptismal candidates. Um, and that's the rationale behind it. That is, since baptism is seen as an identifying mark of true believers in the Lord Jesus, the Lord's Supper is not given to unbaptized people. And so the question often arises, I'm asked this many times as a pastor, if children should be allowed to take the Lord's Supper. And I would say the main requirement for all children should be that they have received the Lord Jesus Christ as their Savior. 
even though some children may, uh, children make this salvation decision at an early age, being baptized and partaking of the Lord's Supper should not be rushed into. As a child matures in his faith, and it is evident that he is truly born again, the parents should be perceptive as to the readiness of the child to partake. Parents should be sensitive to the fact that the spiritual understanding and maturity level of one child to another in the family may differ. Kids develop differently. One kid reads at four, another reads at seven. They, they, they just are different. So it's not, well, my brother took communion at six. Why can't I? I'm eight. Well, it all depends where they are in their walk with the Lord. In many churches, when the parents of a child make known to the pastor that he wants to be baptized, the child, the pastor speaks with the child to decide if he is ready. And so typically, only ordained elders uh, practice baptism. With the Lord's Supper, parents equally need to be perceptive when their child is ready to receive the Lord's table if they are going to allow them to participate before baptism. If a parent is wrong in their assessment by allowing the Lord's table too soon, (laughs) they have many chances to correct it, right? We'll have another one next month and the next month and the next month. Where ideally with baptism, it's only done once and on the right side of conversion. For this reason, I am of the persuasion that communion can be given before baptism and that it is an early and regular opportunity to teach the gospel and to encourage steps of faith a child may take. So you're in a worship service, and you don't allow your child to take the elements because in your perception of things, this child is not yet converted. Why can't I take? We'll we'll talk about it when we get home. Well, what does that mean? Why, why, why do all these people take it and I can't? You know, this is one of the purposes of the ordinances. You know, when they did the Passover, Moses will write in Exodus 12, they, when your kids say, what does this mean, Dad? When they cross the river and they stack 12 stones, just like when they cross the Red Sea and, they, and people come by, hey, Dad, what do those 12 stones mean? It's an opportunity to teach. And so our kids would sit there and we'd say, no. And we'd have discussions about what it meant to be a believer. And when we felt like they had crossed that line, we allowed them to participate with us. But again, if, oh, maybe we missed it by six months. Suppose you did. It's easily correctable. (laughs) Not to say that you couldn't baptize a child again, A lot of people have been baptized twice. When the Lord says one Lord, one faith, one baptism, he's not talking about water baptism. I hope you know that. He's talking about spirit baptism. It only happens once. You're only born again once. But ideally, you want a child who is ready to be baptized to be baptized. It's not possible 100% of the time to call it. But if you ask some careful questions, very often you can call it. In either case, it is vitally important that a child understand that neither baptism or communion saves him, but rather they are steps of obedience and remembrance and proclamation of how Jesus provides for our salvation. So if you as a parent decide, I don't want my child to participate in the elements until they're baptized, that's your call. But if you're asking me, do I have a problem with your child? I would say, well, if you're convinced your child has met the Lord Jesus... This is not just some, hey, it's time for a snack. This is a time of seriousness and reflection, and you want to make sure your child has crossed that line before you participate. But it can be a real teaching opportunity on a regular basis with these children. Should communion be open or closed? The Bible's teaching on the Lord's Supper or the Lord's Table, as found in 1 Corinthians 11, 7 to 34, promotes open participation for any believer. All those who are true believers in God through personal faith in Jesus Christ are worthy to partake of the Lord's Supper by virtue of the fact that they have trusted Christ's death and resurrection as a payment for their sins. The actual reasoning behind some churches, so I've been in some churches and, they, and they've had the Lord's Supper and they said, this is a closed communion table, which means if you're not a member of this church, you cannot participate. 
Now, they have reasons for that, and I respect that. I don't agree with it, but I can respect it. So let me walk through their reasoning. The actual reasoning behind some churches practicing a closed table seems to be that they want to make sure everyone is a believer. This is understandable. However, it places church leadership and or deacons in a position of determining who is worthy to partake, which is somewhat problematic. So there is an assumption in this that if you're a member, you're a believer. Well, that's probably a faulty assumption. How so? Because Jesus said the wheat and the tare would be mixed together until the time of the harvest. There'll be unbelievers in every church. Now, overall, the membership should not be unregenerate, but there'll be unbelievers in every church, and they'll come in uh, unnoticed, the Scripture says, trying to steal away people, trying to bring in false doctrine. They believe for a while, Luke 3, uh, but in time of testing and trial, they they fall away because they're not really converted. They look, they walk, they seem to be believers, but they're not always. A given church may assume that all of their official members are true believers, but even this is not necessarily always 100% accurate. The practice of closed communion to church members only seems to attempt to satisfy a desire to make sure someone doesn't partake in an unworthy manner, which they assume means they need to be saved. That's usually the motivation. You don't want to partake in an unworthy manner. You'll drink condemnation to yourself. The old King James, great for 17th century English, a mistranslation this day to say damnation to yourself. That's not what it means today. But the word damnation had a very different connotation in the 17th century. But the warning is not to the unbeliever. So sometimes when the Lord's Supper is on, you're not a believer, not a believer here, don't participate. You're drinking judgment to yourself. Look, millions of lost people every week participate in the Lord's Supper, and they don't drink any judgment to themselves. The warning is to born-again people who are coming flippantly to the table of the Lord, which represents their purchase price, and yet they're harboring disobedience. So it is clearly addressed not to unbelievers, but to believers. What are we doing? We're proclaiming the Lord's death till He comes. In addition, the passage in 1133 calls the readers brethren. And so God's warning is for believers to avoid partaking in an unworthy manner. This unworthy manner is described as participating in the table as a believer without personally examining oneself. We covered that. So communion should be open to all believers, but those believers should examine their motive for partaking because if a believer is irreverent in their attitude, they should voluntarily refuse to participate. Likewise, I would add, if a believer is under the discipline of the elders of a local church, since we are not even to eat with such a one, they should be counseled by church leadership not to partake. So if you had someone in the fellowship who was under church discipline and they hadn't made it right, they should not be allowed to partake. Since discipline by a local... And by the way, in a lot of churches, that's when they exercise church discipline. Traditionally, I mean, church discipline, I know, is a lost trade in our day. People don't even know what it is. Again, if you want to know what it is, it's in the course in ecclesiology. I have a whole session on it. We practice it in this church when needed, not because it's pleasurable, but because it's commanded. But typically, traditionally, it's at the Lord's Supper when someone is announced as being under the discipline of that church. Since discipline by a local church and fellowship within a local church are related, this is one of the reasons some churches practice a closed table. So I'm not dumping on them, but that's the rationale. So if someone comes to our church on Sunday morning, they're born again, they're welcome to participate with us. And I've had people ask me out in the hall, can I participate? I see you have communion today. Yes, are you a believer? Yes, you're welcome to participate with us. How often should the Lord's Supper be observed? The Bible simply says, for as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, without ever specifying how often we should take communion. However, it seems to me that since we take the Lord's Supper to remember Christ's death and shed blood, that we should take it fairly often. Some churches have a monthly Lord's Supper service. Others do it bi-monthly, others quarterly. Since the Bible does not give us specific instruction, there is some latitude in how often a local church should observe the Lord's Supper. But while God doesn't say once a week, once a month, once a quarter, or once a year, but just as often as you eat this bread, 
While frequency is not commanded or spelled out, it is obvious from Acts that it is regular. It should be often enough to renew focus on Christ without being so often that it becomes routine and just tacked on the end of a service. That's how I felt like it was when I came here in 1990. They did it every week. I asked the elders, and they agreed with me graciously, and we went to once a month. It was just tacked on. So this is meaningless. This is too important to just tack on at the end of a service. Now, if you want to add another half hour to the service, okay. <laughs> Protestants in not wanting to invest the meaning that Catholics place in the Lord's table, sometimes they've probably gone to the other extreme and not celebrating it enough. Nor do we want it to be so often that it becomes empty and inane because we do not take time to carefully reflect and miss the blessing. In this fellowship, we celebrated at least once a month, occasionally twice, rotating between Sunday and Wednesday so all can participate. We have Marines that have to work every other weekend, other things. There will be times when we will come together as one service from all campuses. Seventh question, should the Lord's Supper be outside of the local assembly? By the local assembly, I'm not referring to the physical structure of the building. If our, we had an earthquake and this building tumbled down, we met in a field, it would be okay to have the Lord's Supper. The church, of course, is the people, but the assembly that has a local expression. When addressing the subject of the Lord's table, the Apostle Paul said, when you come together as a church, in 1 Corinthians 11, and again in verse 20 of that chapter, Paul rebuked them by saying, when you meet together, it is not to eat the Lord's Supper. Historically, this has been the common practice of the church for 21 centuries for the Lord's table to be done in the assembly and not in people's homes or in Bible studies or at some conference. It became popular in the 1980s for youth leaders taking their students on retreats and campouts to celebrate the Lord's table. More often than not, you end up having untaught people exercising one of the two ordinances that Christ gave very often in a very careless fashion. We have pastoral manuals from the second century AD. One of the oldest remaining books outside of Scripture itself is called the Didash. It's a second century AD pastoral manual. It's fascinating to read. And it was basically trying to help young pastors. I, I have in my office, when I became a pastor, my father-in-law said, here's a pastoral manual. I said, what do I need this for? He said, well, you, someone may die. You ever done a funeral? Oh, no. Well, here, you better take this. You ever done a wedding? Well, no. Better take this, you know. Well, they were the same people back then, and there was instructions in it. And they didn't use strong drink in the Lord's table. Neither did a Jew. And when I sat at Henoch Teller's table, they used sweet wine or non-fermented wine because they did not want to be guilty of using strong drink. We have pastoral manuals from the second century that describe the Lord's table as an appropriate place for elders to exclude disciplined church members from the fellowship of that table. Assumption in the manual, it's done in the local church. All the church fathers in the local church. The reformers in the local church. The idea that you get together and you, you and your kids and you have the Lord's Supper and call that a church is nonsense. It's not even a church. We have a lot of homeschoolers in America who've created these churches. And they go, oh, this home church is not church. A church is organized, it has elders, it has deacons, it has discipline, it has the ordinances. There's, you don't just call anything where a couple of Christians get together a church. There's definition to it. Take my course in ecclesiology, it might be helpful to some. There has always been an assumption and an understanding that this is a local church ordinance and ultimately becomes an issue of respecting and submitting to local church authority. So if you're in a local church and your pastor says, hey, this is how we believe the Scriptures should do it, then you should obey your leaders and submit to them. You say, I can't do that, then leave. It's a free country. Go to another church. But don't rebel because then you're inviting God's discipline. All right, our deacons are going to come down as we participate in the Lord's table. I know we covered an awful lot. I probably should have done that in three weeks, but Pastor Larry's back on next week, and I wanted to give you a full, broad theology of the Lord's Supper in a handout that you go home and study and reflect and meditate on. So they are first going to bring the bread, and that's what Jesus did. The bread is emblematic of His body. 
that was brutally beaten and crucified for us as a payment for our sin. In his own body on the cross, he bore our sin. As he became sin for us, he incurred the Father's wrath and separation. He always referred to the Lord as Father, with one exception, on Golgotha. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Holy Father, you told us that when we come to this table, it is to remember what you did together as a triune God in giving of yourself through your Son for us on our behalf, bearing the infinite wrath that he was able to take for us as an infinite person in a finite period of time. And we thank you that because of what he did, we can be a forgiven people. Because of what he did, we can be recipients of a new covenant where you place the Spirit in us. And we thank you for that. May we never take it for granted. You told us that if there be any sinful, unconfessed sin and rebellion in our heart, that this is the time for us to deal with it, lest we invite your discipline So search us, O God, we pray with King David. See if there be any wicked way in us. Lead us in the everlasting way that we might confess it and claim your promise that when we confess our sin, you are both faithful and righteous to forgive us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.